Amen. We're in Psalm chapter 1 this morning. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which is driven away by the wind. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The great theme of this first of Psalms is that of happiness. You'll notice that the very first word in the psalm is the word blessed, which translated from Hebrew into English just simply means, oh, how happy. And every time you see that word blessed in the Bible, that's the translation, oh, how happy. I wanted a little bit more than that, so I consulted Daniel Webster. And Webster's dictionary defines happy as favored by good fortune, a state of enjoying characterized by well-being and contentment. That's a good definition. God summarizes that by just simply saying, oh, how happy. To quote from one of the modern-day prophets, Dr. Seuss, (laughs) he wrote a book, one of his children's books, that we read in our household to our kids, I had trouble in getting to Salasalu. Perhaps you know the story, but it's the story of a creature who was moving through life with absolutely no problems at all, until a particular day. And then he started to have problems. And he didn't like the fact that he was feeling pain and pressure and having problems. And so he heard about a land where there are none, a land called Salasalu. And so he set out on a journey to find this place and to go where there would be no problems, just bliss all of the time. And so he begins his journey and he overcomes sick camels and tall mountains, broken down buses, sore feet, floods and wars. And he finally comes to the gate of Salasalu where he's welcomed by the gatekeeper. He says, oh, welcome to Salasalu. We're so glad that you're here, a place where there are no problems. And as he asked for entrance, the gatekeeper said, well, maybe there's one problem. You can't get in. Because in the keyhole, there's a key-slapping slippered, and every time you try to put the key in, he slaps the key out of your hand. And so although Salasalu, a place where there are no problems, unfortunately, you can't get in there. But, the gatekeeper said, I'm leaving because I heard of a place where there's no problems. I'm going to the village of Bula Bubal. And then he leaves, and, you know, this creature is left stranded, having failed in his pursuit to find this land of perfection. Happiness. It's something that every human being desires to have. It shapes the way people make decisions, the way people educate themselves, the way people spend money and time, give effort to. It's something that we're driven to. It's the pursuit. It's something that's inside of us to seek after happiness. Happiness is one of the fundamental principles of our very nation. It's in our founding documents that the basic human right is the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We understand, we want it. 
The problem is it seems that there's so few people that find it, and the ones that do, it seems that they can't hang on to it. So what's the deal with this elusive happiness that we're driven towards, but that so few can find? Well, the good news is that happiness does actually exist. We know that because the Bible tells us so, and God doesn't ever tell us about a land that cannot be inhabited. There is a such thing as happy. And even beyond that, even better news is that God wants us to be happy. It's the will of God for his people that we be in a state of happiness. Wouldn't you want that for your kids? I know we do. We want that for our kids. We don't really even care what they do in life. I mean, obviously, you know, we care what they do in life, but we want them to be happy. That's our goal. We don't push them a direction, but we want them to be fulfilled, to have a contented life of well-being. That's our desire for our kids, and that's God's desire and will for us. Even greater than that, not only does happy exist and that God wants it for us, but God is actually more concerned with your happiness than you are. For yourself and I'm so glad because he's able to do certainly things that I'm not but what that means it means that God knows something about happiness and the happiness that God gives is a true happiness and a lasting happiness and thus in this first of Psalms God lays out for us by his Holy Spirit the, the instructions basically of how to be happy and he does it by two things. First of all, telling us where happiness is not found in verse 1. And then by telling us where happiness is found in verses 2 and onward. So where is happiness not found? He says right out at the onset. He said, blessed or oh how happy is the man, first of all, that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. I want you to mark three words in your Bible in that opening phrase. The word walk, the word counsel, and the word ungodly. The word walk is used poetically or biblically as a metaphor for the actions of our life. Walk is a verb, right? If you're walking, then that's a verb. It's something that you are doing. And when the Bible talks about our walk, it's talking about our life or the things that we do with our life. When Jacob met the Pharaoh, in his later years, the Pharaoh asked him how old he was. And Jacob snickered a little bit. He told him his age. And then he said, few and evil have been the, the steps of my pilgrimage, likening his life unto a walk. And so when the Bible talks about a walk, it's talking about our life, what we do with our life. The word counsel that he uses there, we know counsel. It means advice, guidance, or wisdom. To hear or see what someone else says or does and then to pattern and model our lifestyle or our actions based upon the counsel that we received. Now, every human being receives counsel in some form or another from the day they're born until the day they die. We come into this world as a blank slate. We know absolutely nothing. And we immediately begin to counsel with what's going on in the world around us to figure life out. My six-year-old Riley got his first pair of laced sneakers yesterday first time. And now he's seeking counsel. He's watching how everyone else ties their shoes. Are you a one-loop method guy? Or are you a two-loop bunny ears guy that swings him around? Or are you a tuck-and-tie method shoelacer? You know, and he's, he's evaluating, and he's probably coming to the conclusion that he wants to go back to Velcro you know, or elastic. It's just a whole lot easier. 
But we do that every day of our lives, not just as kids, but as adults. We look around, we see what people are doing, we ask people what they're doing in order that we might evaluate, am I doing the best I can be for me, for my happiness, for my future? The word ungodly that he uses there, it means morally wrong, guilty, or without God in the life. We understand that someone who doesn't know God, that's who the counselor is in this instance here at the beginning of this passage. So blessed or happy is the man that does not live in the counsel that he gets from ungodly sources. That's the first place where happiness is not found. Now, I'm really thankful that God simplifies things for us because what he does here is that he divides all counsel into one of two categories. It's counsel that either comes from God or it's counsel that doesn't come from God. And the implication is that one of those types of counsel is going to lead toward blessed and the other one of those counsels is going to lead towards miserable. It's not going to produce happiness in my life. So happiness, for you and I, so that we understand, is never going to come when we adhere to the advice that we get from ungodly sources. So what are ungodly sources? Well, it could be a person, very smart, very successful, very productive, very much respected in what they do or what they offer advice for. But that person doesn't know God, and the motivation behind what they're giving or doing themselves is not towards the things of God, and so it's ungodly counsel. Often many of the experts, you guys know what I mean by experts, right? The people that, well, they're the ones that you listen to about this or that. Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, Oprah, you know, <laughs> radio or TV personalities, you know, people that seem to be successful, that seem to have something that we want, but yet they don't know God, their counsel doesn't come from God, and the Bible here is telling us that that's ungodly counsel. Counsel that we receive from Google searches, or watching YouTube, or asking Siri. Oftentimes you can get good counsel on how to fix your house, but if you're trying to fix your life, it's probably not the place that you want to be going for counsel, because it's counsel apart from God. Sometimes you can get ungodly counsel from a godly person. It happens in the Bible. We read about Sarai, Abram's wife. She was barren and couldn't give Abram children, and they desperately wanted some. And so she said, hey, I got an idea. Go sleep with my servant girl, and when she has a baby, we'll just call it ours. And Abraham thought, well, Dr. Phil says that'll make me happy. Oprah says there's nothing wrong with that. I like it. Let's do it. And so they did it. It was horrible counsel. It turned out to be a disaster in their lives and in their lineage in future generations. So godly woman, ungodly counsel. And so counsel must be godly if it's going to be profitable. The big problem or one of the big problems with ungodly counsel is that it ignores the vital ingredients of process and time. It says that happiness is the outcome no matter what the process of getting happy and no matter what the cost or the outcome of that happiness is. You just be happy. And so you'll have a young single male or, or female and they desperately are looking for a spouse. And they can't bear being alone. They're not happy in that state of loneliness. And so they'll seek out counsel. Well, what should I do? Well, just meet someone. Go to the bar. Go to the club. 
Go online and just see what profiles and pictures you like. And just find someone and get married and address the issue of your misery. Just get married. Don't worry about the process and don't worry about the future. Just do what's going to make you happy right now. Or you have someone that already is married and they're not happy and the reason for their discontent is the marriage. And so they'll seek for counsel and they'll say, I'm just not happy in my marriage. Well, happy is, that's what we drive for. Happiness is the ends. It's, it, it, and the ends justify the means. So if you're not happy in your marriage, then just get out of your marriage and do what it's going to take to make you happy right now. But it doesn't take into consideration process of happiness or time. That is, what will happen in the future on the other side of the divorce? Will I actually be happier on the other side of having made this decision? Ungodly counsel said, just get it. Just do it. It doesn't matter how, and don't worry about the future. Just get what you want. But listen, church. Process and time, when it comes to happiness, matter. They make a difference. If you build a house or buy a house, you want to know and make sure that that house has been constructed correctly, right? You don't want it to be held together with paper clips or wood glue. You want to make sure that it's fastened, that it's measured, that things are square and level, and that that house is going to stand up over time. Otherwise, getting that house might make you temporarily happy, but in the outcome or the long run, it's going to turn out to be a headache because it wasn't done the right way. And with God, process is more important, if not as important, as outcome. Time says, how long will happy last? Yes, a divorce might make you happy today, but what about five years from now? A quick marriage? Yeah, that might make you happy today for a little while. But what's it going to look like two years from now, three years from now, or ten years from now when you didn't take into, when, yeah, because you didn't take into consideration those very important things? Here's the truth, church, concerning happiness, or at least one truth concerning happiness. Is that happiness is not the byproduct of ideal circumstances. I'll be happy when this happens, or once I obtain this. Happiness is never the byproduct of a change in my immediate circumstances. It just doesn't work. The origin of happiness comes from something that's underneath the surface, that runs deeper than the circumstances that I'm presently living in. How could the Apostle Paul sit in a Philippian jail, having just been beaten, fastened in chains, left in a pool of his own blood, left to die in the darkest of dungeons, and yet at midnight he's singing praises to God? How is that possible? We know it was real. God doesn't put hypocrisy in his word for us to read. It means that the source of his happy wasn't lying in the current situation that he was in. How could David, how could David say these words, Psalm 34, verse 10? He said that the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. You say, I know how David could say that. He was David. Haven't you read his story? He was the king. Not when he spoke these words. When David spoke these words, he was a fugitive. He had no food. He had no money. He had no destiny, no future. He was running for his life and didn't know if he'd live another day. He was all alone and seemingly completely abandoned and forsaken. And it was in that context that David could look up and say, I lack nothing. I have everything that I need. Why? 
because he knew the secret is that happiness is not the byproduct of where I am or what I have. It's who I have and what's going on underneath the surface. That's what determines happy. And thus David could be happy, Paul could be happy, no matter what. So for us to take our cues or get our advice from ungodly sources, thinking that if we follow it, we're going to be happy, listen, it doesn't matter how much money you spend on it, how much time or effort or drive you give to it, if it's ungodly counsel, it can never produce happiness, and it never will, as the psalmist says. He goes on to say, there, beyond that, it says, not only blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but he also doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Again, I'd like you to mark three words in the passage. The word stand, the word way, and the word sinner. The word stand in the King James, it's kind of a, a bad translation. In more modern English, we would use the word stop. The Bible will say stand in the ways and look around. It means stop. Pause for just a moment and take a break in your current path. And so the person who's standing in this instance is a person who's stopped. Their forward progress has been halted and they're no longer moving in the direction that they're supposed to be going. The way in this verse speaks of the path. And the path is that of the sinner, the godless person or the person who's backslidden or lost. So... Happiness, he's saying, is not going to be found by being stopped in the path of backsliding or of transgressing and sinning. Keep in mind that this psalm was not written to unbelievers. He's not trying to instruct godless people how to be happy. He's talking to you and I. He's talking to God's people. And he's saying, listen, if you're looking for happiness and you're looking for it while you're in a position where you've slidden back into some sin of your old life that you think is going to make you happy in the present context, he says that you're never going to find happiness there. So many people often do that. They come to a point in their Christian life or walk and they say, there's just something missing, there's something lacking. And they find themselves getting into old things, old habits, thinking that it's going to help or offer some temporary relief. But it never does. I think of when Satan came to Eve. Just think about her conditions, what she had. Adam and Eve were living in liquid paradise. They were clothed in light. They had everything that their hearts could desire. They walked with God in the cool of the day. It was perfect. Their lives were perfect. And all of a sudden, here comes the serpent. And the serpent says, hey, you're missing something. She goes, huh? I'm missing something. What am I possibly missing? He said, well, you're not God, are you? God doesn't want you to be God. He's given you all of this to distract you. He doesn't want you to be God. That's why he said, don't eat the fruit from that tree, because he knows if you eat that tree, then you'll be like him. You can actually make your current standing even better than it is by doing something that you've been forbidden to do. What did he do? He effectively blinded her to everything good in her life because all she could see was the one thing that she didn't have. She then gave in to the temptation to take from the tree and eat from the fruit. And when she did, not only did she not get the thing that was promised her, but she lost everything else. And that's what happens when a Christian 
falls back into sin or embraces sin thinking that some sinful thing or forbidden thing is going to make them happy. You lose enjoyment of everything else that you have and you don't get the satisfaction that that sin initially promised. Listen, God doesn't tell us that sin is bad because he said so. My parents said that. Why can't I do this? Because I said so. God doesn't do that. Sin isn't bad because God said. God says, don't do it because sin is bad. Do you understand the difference? In other words, it's not preference. Well, I just don't like that, God says, so don't do it. That's not it. God knows what these things are and what they do, and so he warns us as a loving father, and he says, stay away from these things because happiness is not going to be the outcome of having them in your life. I don't tell my kids, don't stick your finger in the light socket because I'm mean. But dad, my fingers would fit so nicely in there. No, I'm protecting them. I know what's going to happen if they do that. And so a loving father warns us. Let me ask you this. Was Eve happier on the other side of taking the thing that she was forbidden to have? I submit that she most clearly was not. This is why I believe for you and I it's a very important practice and discipline that we be people that often regularly give thanks to God for the things that we have. You say, give thanks for the things. Do you know what I have? Do you know what's going on in my life right now? Listen, there are things in your life right now that you can give thanks for. Because when we don't give thanks, we become blinded to the things that we have. And we're on the first fast track of losing even those things that we have. I often tell my kids when they want something, I'll say, what would you trade to have it? And then I'll list something that's precious to them. And I ask you this morning, you who can only see the thing that you don't have, what thing that's precious to you would you trade in order to get it? Would you trade your spouse? Would you trade your kids? Would you trade your educate? Someone just said yes. <laughs> this message is for you, sister. <laughs> <laughs> what would you trade? God says you're never going to find happiness if you're stopped. You're stopped in the way of the backslider. The third place, he says, is he says not just the counsel of the ungodly or the path of sinners, but he goes on to say, third of all, nor he that sits in the seat of the scornful. In the Bible, the seat is always the place of education, the place where one learns. Paul said that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. It was where he was educated. It's where he learned Old Testament theology. Jesus, often we see his disciples. We see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's the place of learning. It's the place of the pupil, the place where one sits. The scorner in the Bible, or the scornful one, as it talks about here in the verse, is the person who scoffs or mocks or is arrogantly inflated against God. Scoffers are specifically in the Bible a reference to those that despise the cross, number one, and that despise the second coming or reappearing of Jesus Christ in his physical presence on the earth. That's how the word is used in context of the Bible, the scoffer. The person who says Christ, the cross, it's hogwash, it's useless, it's meaningless, it's a waste of time. The person who says, Jesus, coming again? People have been saying that for thousands of years, and yet we look around and there's no Jesus. That's the scoffer. 
It's the person who has no time for God, that pushes God out of everything, and that says that to live for him is a complete waste of time. And the psalmist here is telling us that happiness will never be found when we receive our education, our ideals, our shaping, our worldviews, our education from ungodly sources, those that have pushed God to the background. I think it's absolutely an ironically amazing thing that we live in a country that has made the pursuit of happiness one of the fundamental human rights, but it has effectively pushed out of its education system the very thing wherein the root of happiness is found. We don't want God in our education. We don't want God to be an influence in the lives of our citizens or of our people. But pursue happiness, good luck. Let me know if you find it apart from him. And then we wonder why there's more citizens under the age of 20, student age, that are on some kind of psychotropic medication or antidepressant or prescription drug than at any other time in human history. We can't figure it out what's wrong with them. Why aren't they happy? Why are they so miserable? What's going on here? Why are things like Fort Lauderdale happening? Why are people losing their minds and going berserk? Could it be because we've pushed the very essence of what makes someone happy out of what's influencing on a day-by-day basis? It's not just our kids, it's us as adults as well. What are we allowing to educate ourselves? Are we learning from talk radio? Are we taking our cues from TV? What is it that's educating us? It's going to have a direct reflection in our very essence and well-being. When I was commuting to the city, I, for a season, got into talk radio, listening to political commentary and the personalities that express views in the whole thing. And I learned. I was sitting at the feet of these commentators. You know what was amazing, what I noticed? Is that the more I was learning, the more my joy was diminishing. I was starting to get mad at people, you know, for the things that they were doing. And, and, and I, I started to fight a fight that was a useless fight. I started to fight against darkness. How do you fight darkness? Go attack it. I challenge you, go home, shut off the lights, and fight against the darkness. It's a complete waste of time. You know how you fight darkness? Turn the light on. Jesus never activated politically or got involved in the issues of his day. He brought the Father into the world, into his heart, into his life, and in it there was joy in that. Those that sit at the seat of the scornful will never find happiness. It's not in ungodly counsel. It's not in a backslidden state. It's not in godless education, opinion, and ideals. Where in the world then is happiness found? He tells us the answer in verse 2. He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Observe again three words in this passage, the word delight, the word law, and the word meditate. The word delight means to take pleasure in. Your longing, what you long for, your desire, your valued thing, your main purpose. That's what it means to delight what you long for. It's your aim. It's your desire. The word law is the word Torah. Torah. In David's time, it spoke of the written word of God. The things that God has laid out for us, his testimony in the scriptures. The Bible, as we would call it today. The word of God. That's the law that he's speaking of. And then he uses the word meditate. The word meditate literally means to cogitate or to bring up again. It's the picture of a cow that goes out early and grazes in the pasture and fills up 
and then retires to his stall and enjoys what he ate in the morning for about 12 hours. He chews it, extracts, swallows, absorbs, brings it up again. Chews, extracts, absorbs, swallows, brings it up again. And he just does that. You look seven hours later and the jaws are still moving. That's the idea. To meditate on the Word of God means that I fill up daily. And then I continue to bring it up, to meditate on it, to extract from it, to let it nourish me and become a part of me. I don't just read it and let it go, but I allow the Word of God to be the primary chief influence in my life, and I make that my delight. And what the psalmist is saying, inspired by the Spirit of God, is that if you want to be happy, this is where it begins. Follow the yellow brick road. The Word of God, delighted in, taken in, meditated on, that's where it comes from. You say, well, what in the world is so valuable about the Bible? Because that's contrary to all human reason to say that that's where happiness is ultimately going to be found. What's the value of it? The value of it, first of all, is well, John chapter 1, verse 1. What does it say? It says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Meaning that the very Word that you and I are reading from right now, from Genesis to Revelation, is the scripted DNA of God Almighty. It's who He is. He makes no separation between what's written on the page and the core of His person, His personality. By knowing the Word of God, we're knowing God. Think about the privilege that that is for you and me, that we can say, I know God, I have access to God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul the Apostle writes to Timothy, and he says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally that it's God-breathed. He has written these things with his very mouth and is profitable for instruction, for correction, for uh, righteousness, that we might be thorough and complete, lacking nothing. Meaning that God in his word has not only given him, us himself, but he's given to us everything that we need for a successful and happy life in this world. Second Peter, Peter writes, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and he says that the great and precious promises that we have written in the word of God give to us all that we need for life and godliness. Everything that we could ever need is contained here in the word of God. He's given all of it to us. And the icing on the cake, not only do we know God, who he is, do we have everything that we could possibly need for all of life from God in it, but the icing on the cake is that we know that it is absolutely true. That there's no error in it. You don't have to say, well, is this part, Bible, true or is it not? No, the whole thing is true. Jesus said in John 17, 17, he said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus and the Word being one. And so I know that when God speaks in His Word, showing me who He is or telling me how to live, that I can build my life there. And if I have a problem believing it or receiving it because it's outrageous or it's hard to perceive or understand or do, I never have to question if the problem is with the Bible or with me. I know where the problem is. The problem is with me. And that hurts sometimes, but it's an anchor because I stand upon it. That The word of God is absolute truth. Who he is, what he says. 
And thus happy is the man who makes it his meditation. Now the law of the Lord that he talks about here in verse 2, for you and I, for the New Testament Christian, it goes one step further. It's not just the written word of God. But for you and I, there's more concerning this law. Why? Because Jesus at the Last Supper held up a cup and he said to his disciples, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood which you shed for the forgiveness of your sins. You say, new covenant? What's the new covenant? Paul defined it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. Listen to what Paul says. He says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Meaning that the law that you and I are under, that we can take delight in, is a different law than simply the written command of the old. You say, well, what is it? Jesus said, this is my spirit, my life. It's being given for you. It's the law of the spirit. And thus for you and I, when we come to Christ, he gives us his spirit living inside of us. That's the new covenant. And what that means, according to Jeremiah chapter 31, where it tells us what the new covenant is, it means that we have his will written right in the very tables of our heart. He puts the desires and the inclinations inside of us by his spirit. It also means that we can hear his voice. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So we have him with us constantly speaking, prodding, leading. It means also that we, yes, still have the Bible, but we have the author of the Bible living inside of us, teaching it what, us what it means and helping us understand it. But we have something else, fourthly, in this spirit of life that even the psalmist didn't have. No one in the Old Testament did. You know what that is? Is that we have power given to us by his spirit to live out the things that he has written and said. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it says in the book of Acts. And you'll be witnesses for me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so God has given us in this law, he's given us his word, but he's given us his spirit. And so the root or the key of happiness for you and I is a mind saturated with his word and a heart that's filled with his spirit and with his person. You say, well, how does that lead to happiness? Saturated with the word, filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice what the psalmist says, because he answers the question. He says it there in verse 3. It says that he shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. He shall be like a tree. Notice again three words here. The word tree, the word planted, and the word rivers or rivers of water. The tree in this metaphor is you and I. We are the tree. The planted is where our roots are stuck. In other words, what is it that you and I are drawing our life source from? That's what the roots of the tree do. They draw nutrients and water for the tree so that it can thrive and nourish. Well, where is the tree planted, the life drawing from, that delights in God's word? He says, by the rivers of water. The word rivers literally speaks of a delta, a river delta. The word is peleg. It means divided. The place where the river divides into its main source. And I'm glad he uses that word there. You know why? Because the most fertile ground along a river is going to be where the delta is because it's picked up all of the nourishment from everything upstream and it's laying it into the ground, the nutrients of the soil, where the roots of that tree would be planted. So what does that mean if we're like a tree 
that's planted in the place where all the nutrients are. Here's what it means. It means unlike the godly, I'm sorry, ungodly counselor that can be no help to you, the counsel that we receive from God, it's perfect, enduring, complete, and ceaseless counsel. In the Word of God, God gives us counsel in every single situation that we could ever come across in life. A lot of times when I have an issue in my own experience, something that I'm going through or something that I need help with, what I'll do is I'll take a piece of paper, I'll write the issue at the top of the piece of paper, and then I'll let the Bible just talk to me and counsel me. What does the Bible say about this? And I'll pull from the things that I can draw from memory and just that are written in my heart from knowing the Word. I'll look it up in a concordance or you know, maybe even do some Google searching just to find ideas, Bible verses and places to think about for, for it. And I'll just begin to write down things that, that God says concerning the issue that I'm going through. And you know what happens as the Bible begins to counsel me? Two things happen. Successful counseling. Two things. Number one, I get perspective. I begin to see the issue for what it really is, where it comes from, what it's doing, all, all the perspective to understand clearly what I'm going through. And then secondarily, direction. How do I navigate out of or through this situation that I'm in right now? That's a good counselor. If you can get perspective and direction, you're in a good place. And that's exactly what God does. The prophet Daniel was in Babylon. What are we doing here? I'm a prophet and I'm in godless Babylon. How did I get here? What, what's going on, God? Why this suffering amongst your people? And so he opened up his Bible and he was reading from Jeremiah. And he saw in the prophecy of Jeremiah that because of Israel's disobedience, they would be slaves in Babylon for 70 years. Daniel read that. He tells us in Daniel 9. Perspective. Oh, God, this is why this is happening. This is why we're here. This is what's going on in the whole thing. Well, what am I supposed to do? And so he continued to seek the Lord. And you know what God did? God gave him direction. He said, Daniel, you want to know what's going to happen? Well, let me tell you what's going to happen for the next 2,500 years. And he laid out for him all of Israel's future history. That's what God does when we take our issues to the Word. It's like a tree planted in the riverbed where counsel comes from. He gives us perspective. He gives us direction. And it's ceaseless. It's a one-stop shop that we might navigate life successfully. Counsel, path, education. As we allow the Word of God to saturate our hearts and our minds, we come to learn more about life. We gain a worldview, a set of ideals, a wisdom to live by that cannot be touched by anything this life throws at us. And it is the source of eternal bliss, even here in this life, as we sit at the feet of our Father and we allow His Word to be written upon our hearts. This is why Moses, dying, told Joshua, listen, Joshua, here's my one instruction for you. Get in the Word. Meditate on it, study it, day and night, obey it, and you'll have good success. It's why David said to Solomon as he was passing, Solomon, here's my one piece of advice for you. Get in the Word. Let the Word of God saturate in your heart, in your mind, in your being. Live for God, and you'll have good success. But wait, don't you have volumes to write to me? No, 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 no. There's a volume. In the volume of the book, it's written of him. Let the word of God be written in your heart and you will do well. Well, how does it come? You say, because I hear happy, I believe in the Bible, but happiness still seems a little elusive to me. Notice what the psalmist goes on to say. 
He says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. In other words, there's a process. How does a tree bring forth fruit? Do you sow the seed and then the next day go harvest the apples? No. The roots have to go in. The plant has to develop. The branches have to grow. And then the flower springs forth the fruit. And in time, the healthy, nourished, cultivated fruit can now be harvested and enjoyed. And thus it is for the happiness of you and me. It often doesn't come on the first day, does it? I know when I first came to Christ, there was battles. Those things I had to fight through. My whole life was changing. My nature was changing. My friends were changing. My mindset, everything was changing so rapidly. It was so difficult. I thought, where's the happiness? This is hard. But God is into process because he wants our happiness to be lasting. I bought an Isuzu Rodeo when I was a newlywed, and I was so happy, you know. Wow, an SUV, 4 by 4 the thing is mint, it's beautiful. After buying it, I learned that it was held together with zip ties. And that happiness quickly faded into a headache, and it was a headache until the day I got rid of it. I've heard that the two happiest days of a boat owner's life are the day they buy it and the day they sell it. See, there's a happy... But then there's a happy. And the happiness that God gives is a happiness that's cultivated as we walk in His ways and we see His process worked out in our lives. And when He brings us to that place of happy, it's a lasting happiness. And it's of eternal value. That's what God gives. That's His desire. It's what He wants for us. And so He gives us a happiness that doesn't fade uh, on the whole thing. Now this requires faith and patience. Listen to James chapter 5. James says this. He says, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies. God is very good. He's very kind. But listen, be patient. Continue walking in his path and you will be happy. You will see his work worked out in your life. He goes on to say that their leaf also will not wither. Meaning the leaf of a plant is its beauty, its identity, its health, its food source. To wither is an indication that it's dried up. What he's saying here is that when you do things God's way and you do it in God's path, it's going to be a lasting happiness. You're not going to, after a while, look and, oh, it's fading. Oh, it's, it's withered away. It's become less than what it was. With God, it doesn't fade. It's eternal. And then he goes on to say, finally, he says that whatsoever he doeth will prosper. And I love this promise. It's one of my favorite promises of the Old Testament. What he's saying here is this. He's saying that if you put yourself in God's process and you meditate on His Word, and you let that be the delight and the primary influence of your heart, and then you wait on Him and trust Him for the outcome of the things that you're going through, if you do those things, then you don't have to worry about the future. Well, is it going to work? Am I going to be happy? Is there going to be something? You don't have to worry about that. He says, whatsoever He doeth will prosper. We can rest in the fact that God says, and therefore, it's going to happen because God said it. Whatsoever he does will prosper. Sometimes we come to things in our life where we don't know what to do. Crossroads, right? So we commit it to God, 
We submit to His will the best that we can, and we move forward with the assurance that He's going to cause it to work out. Well, in the close of the psalm, he contrasts with the ungodly. Notice how he closes it out. He says in verse 4, he says, The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind dries away. The chaff is the useless part of the wheat. There's no substance to it. There's no weight. It's broken off. It's thrown into the wind, and then it's carried away. The counsel of the ungodly, the habits and disciplines of ungodly people, the ideals and worldviews of ungodly, it's going to break off and wither away. There's no value to it at all whatsoever. He says also, therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Meaning that when they stand before God ultimately one day, not only will they have a failed life on earth, but they won't obtain heaven either. And then finally, he says that they won't sit in the congregation of the righteous, meaning that you could even try to tell them God's wisdom, and they're not going to listen to it because they think it's foolishness. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And so God lays it out for us. It's a contrast. The psalm begins with the word blessed, and it ends with the word perish. And in between, God gives us two choices. He says, you can search for happiness in the world's definition, in the world's path, in the world's process and way. You could also have the world's time, it won't last. Or you can give yourself to God. You can let your mind and heart be saturated with His Word. Make it your delight, your aim. You can be filled with God, His Holy Spirit, walking in His will, listening to and hearing His voice, empowered to obey the things that He says. There's a promise in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. It says this. It says that it will come to pass that if you will hearken diligently to the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I command you this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings, all these happies, shall come on thee and overtake thee if you will hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God. I love that word, overtake. I love it. It's a great picture. Because in my mind, I see myself going in a direction, and behind me, there's this massive tidal wave that's going a little bit faster than I am. And I'm just waiting for it, waiting for it, waiting for it, waiting for it. But I know for a fact that it's going to come. And that's what God is saying. Listen, if you let my word, my counsels, my truth, my person, be your delight in the saturation of your heart. It's only a matter of time before every blessing that can be given is going to overtake your life and you'll be swallowed up in it. It's God's goodness. It's God's ways. The worship team can come as we close. But as they come, I ask you this question. Are you, this morning, sitting here, are you truly happy? You say, I would be if. I will be when? Listen, no. You're never going to find it there. Just ask King Solomon. He'll give you a great counseling session. He tried everything under the sun that he could to find contentment or happiness in this life. And after spending every dollar and trying every experience and not finding what he was looking for, do you know what he said? He said, thus I hated life. Happiness will never be found in the circumstances that you find yourself in or where you're looking. The issue isn't circumstance. 
The issue is that you need to be transplanted. Set your roots in God and in His Word. Make His Word your chief and primary affection and influence for all things. Know Him. Let Him renew your mind. And you'll see the root, the, the, the root of happiness begins to bear out in the fruit of your life. Maybe you're here this morning and the reason you're not happy is because you're stopped in the path of sinners. You're in a backslidden state. You've thought that indulging or embracing something that you know is forbidden and wrong would ultimately lead to happiness. Here's the condition of your soul right now. You're at a standstill. You're staying right where you are. There's no way for you to move. If that's you this morning, you know what you do? Just repent. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll pick you up and transplant you right to where you're supposed to be as soon as you turn to Him. For the rest of us, get rooted in God's Word. Become a lover of God's Word. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 23 says this. I love these words. God says, buy the truth, sell it not. Buy the truth. What does that mean? If you buy something, you're giving up something in exchange to receive something else, right? Traditionally, that would be money for merchandise. But in terms of the truth, to buy the truth, it means that I'm going to give away some other thing that's occupying my mind or my heart or my affections. I'm going to give it away. I'm going to let it go. And in exchange for it, I'm going to replace it with the truth, buying the truth, the Word of God. And so I'm getting rid of video games. I'm getting rid of an obsession with Internet things. I'm getting rid of social media. I'm getting rid of... I'm, I'm selling these things in order to buy truth. I'm making room in my mind and my imagination and my heart for the things of God. The second part of that is sell it not. Meaning don't ever trade away the richness of God's word in order to make room in your mind or life for something else that's other than God. You're always getting a bad deal when you do that. Buy the truth. Sell it not. Church, listen. God wants us to be happy. He knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. You are the wonderful counselor. And we're so grateful, Lord, that you've laid these things before us. And we ask and pray that by the person and presence of your spirit, you would set us in a right way, adjust our perspective and our mindset, and help us, Lord, to know you. And I pray for anyone here this morning that has yet to accept you to be part of the new covenant, spirit of life in Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that this morning they would open your heart and their heart to know you and to let you in. We thank you, Lord, for all that you give. You're a faithful Father. We ask your blessing and your spirit fall upon us now. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's all stand together.